This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. You know how to interact with it. Started? Yep. Welcome to the Asian Torah Essentials course here in the Holy City of Jerusalem. We're happy to have you here watching this. And we are, today we're discussing because it's called the Essentials course. So what is it, the Essentials? Oh, this is the Essentials of Judaism. Now, am I still wearing my headphones? It's the Essentials of Judaism. I thought something sounded weird. And, and if we're doing the Essentials of Judaism, what are your gaping holes? What are the holes you have in Judaism? So feel free, by the way, to text in. Uh, maybe you'll keep an eye on it if someone texts in a hole, or maybe it's better you keep an eye on it, because you can, can you read from there? So, yeah, so if you, have a, if you have a hole you'd like me to speak about, so far the holes we got are um, the source for all the little customs we do, the little stuff we do that aren't actually halacha. And then we have healthy growth. Um, how do you grow healthfully as a Jew? Because you can really go OCD. And, um, and then kids and sex education, including how do you deal with the, the more, uh, uh, how do you deal with the very public uh, deviant, meaning things that have deviated. I know deviant's not a nice word for them, but people who have deviated from the heterosexual norm is called sexual deviancy. So how do you deal with that with kids and when do you talk to them about it as a whole? You got a whole? Um, yeah, so feminism and social justice. Why are you putting feminism around together with social justice? It's more of the same, same issue. Why is it the same issue? I would never put them together. Just generally people that are feminists are people that deal with social justice. Anyway, what about it? How, how, how that plays into Judaism? Feminism, social justice, and Judaism. That's a pretty hot topic, Judaism. I'd like to put something in that connects to that. Yeah. Um, so I've heard many people say that they think that Judaism is chauvinistic. Yeah. And how do you... How do you show them that it isn't? What sources can you give them? Okay, I can include that. Um, did you formulate your question yet? Not yet? Yeah. Um, I'd say my question is, you've got Judaism of 2,000 years ago to Judaism today, which has changed a lot. What has, the world or Judaism? Both. But Both. I would say, looking at Halakha 2,000 years ago to now, the rabbis have pulled to a certain extent their opinion on Halakha. Yeah. And uh, how... I think kind of I've got issues with it. A modern approach to hello. You like the older stuff? No, I I know what I'm saying at the base of it was two thousand years ago, men and women could be up there together. You can flip the screen. Um I think two thousand years ago men and women were up together on the Temple Mount. Yeah. Now when you go to the cartel, I don't have an issue with it, but I'm just saying men and women are separate and it's all this like stress. They had this. They were separate before. They this was not yeah, the temple. I'm, I'm, Afterwards. I'm just saying, no, that was like for Sukkot during uh, Simchat Be'er Sashueva. They I'm separated. Generally, them. I'm saying it's how things uh, they are They probably weren't separate. I understand how people get to it and why, but it just doesn't sit with me. Great. Okay, great. Separation of genders, we'll discuss. Can I just add to that? Yeah. So, I think, similar to what he's saying, like, over the past few hundred years, Judaism has progressed a lot and a lot of changes have occurred but that also caused halacha to change when we're stringent change our rules make it work in a certain way how do we know that the halacha we're keeping right now is what Hashem wants us to be doing because we know for a lot of rules 
it's totally different than what the Torah actually tells us to be done. Okay, modern stringency. Modern, modern stringency. Yeah. Modern. You know, okay, we're almost there. Um, just like the line between having a Muna and also like your Shabbos, like, you, like when you know that it's... The top one is Shabbos. You know, yeah. Like when we think we're doing enough and we just put our kids in the shadow. Betachoin versus, uh, we should be going in English for that, for people who don't know Hebrew. Okay. I just, I just kind of turn it off and back on. I'm not making a bracha because I'm in the middle of a meal, which you're welcome to remind me afterwards. Any of the ladies can remind me to eat. The men would. And by the name of Shabtai Tzvi, who used all the mystical tradition and basically pronounced himself Mashiach. And it created a huge stir, a gigantic vacuum occurred because um, he failed in his attempt to be Mashiach. I'm sure he had you know, the best of intentions, but it just didn't go. And I guess being Mashiach required a little more than he thought, he, more than he was able to handle. And again, I fine, except that no one, we didn't have scholars. Scholars were still as they have now in Eastern traditions. There was only like one scholar per city or per region. There was a scholar. You had a question, you went to the scholar. You spoke to him. And Ashkenazim were the same. There was no such thing as yeshivas. No one went to 200 years ago, nobody went to yeshiva. Ever, there was no such thing as a yeshiva. You, when you were 12 years old, you learned a trade, and by 13, you were, by your bar mitzvah, you were working. By 15, you were probably married. And that's the way life worked. What about yeshivas? No such thing. I'm talking about 200 years ago. There was no such thing as yeshivas. And the and what happened was when you dry up Judaism, and the only scholars are these individuals, like one per region or one per city, one per town. If you dry up Judaism, well, that Jew's fine. The rabbi's fine. He's got the wetness. He's got all the moisture of Judaism. What I mean by the moisture, I mean the spirit part, not just the ritual. There's spirit in ritual. And if you want to be a spiritual person, you're going to need the spirit and the ritual. But what happened was they sucked the spirit out of it, and they just went for the ritual. And But meanwhile, there were next to no scholars, according to the, you know, the sociologists, I don't know if they're right, but they say there was only, uh, 200 years ago, there was only 2 to 3% scholarship in the Jewish world, in the Ashkenazi Jewish world. Which again, it, that's already a pretty big number. That means like there were people who were rabbis, but wasn't a large enough amount. Two to three percent. Well, why would these people do such a thing? They would be smart people. Why would they t- put move Kabbalah out of the system? Right. It was just a reaction to a, a gaping hole in in the Jewish tradition. Meaning, people were dropping like flies after Shabtai Svi, after he crashed as a Mashiach. Oh, all his followers, the millions of followers, they didn't come back to Judaism. Yeah, they bailed. That's why. I mean, did I miss that part? Did I not mention yeah, I that, that, that millions of Jews fell away from Judaism? Yeah, m- millions of Jews fell away. What? They, they weren't into being bringing back. They were into, like, whoever's right now observant, Whoever's born into a family and growing up observant, it was called rationalist Judaism. Rationalist. No more spirit, just rational facts, you know. Put on your tefillin and shut up.
Okay. And the, anyway, I agree with you, obviously. That's what I'm talking about. Right. So anyway, they did that. And what happened later, a generation later or two, uh, after Shabtai Tzvi, there was a great Rebbe by the name of the Baal Shem Tov, who was a Kabbalist, a very hidden Kabbalistic scholar, who created a movement to, to rehydrate the community and get everything back to normal. So that was the Hasidic movement. The Hasidic movement was just basically re-railing a runaway train. They were, they were, in, they were making the effort to re-rail Judaism, as it always was. Then it became two camps, the rationalists, which became known as the Litvox, and then the, and then the super-rationalists, you could call them, which were the Hasidim, who brought back the super-rational, which is the spirit. Is that clear? Yeah. So there's the Hasidim that are the super-rationalists, and they were into the wetness of Judaism and the, and the ritual, the spirit and the ritual. And then there were the Litvox, who were the rationalists. Now, again, the scholarship of them, they always had their Judaism hydrated. But this, unfortunately, the scholars were a tiny percentage of the nation. And so the majority of the nation were the dehydrated, and then there were the hydrated. One more thing. This is why, if you hear stories about the original Hasidic masters, who were really just Kabbalistic rabbis, but the reason they were called Hasidic masters is they used to travel a lot. You'll notice the majority of the stories are travel stories, road trips. And when's the last time you heard of a rabbi, a rabbi doing road trips into secular communities? meaning communities of people who don't know Judaism anymore. It's unheard of. If, if that's what's called Hasidic, that makes me Hasidic. That makes me into a Hasidic rabbi. You know, I'm a Hasidic rabbi. Why? Because I go from town to town and teach people about the soul and the spirit of things. You get that? So, But today, Hasidic rabbis are enshrined in honor with their Hasidim all surrounding them, basically... You know, creating a leader followership, which is not Judaism at all. There's no point in Jewish history where we had followers. That's why there's no such word in Hebrew as a follower. You know, Hebrew vocab, the Hebrew language doesn't include the word follower because there's there's only leaders. And what's so what? Why are there so many words for leader? Because a Jewish leader creates leaders. Yeah, but it's a it's a sorry. Sorry, this is a conversation between us, obviously. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Maybe I'll just stay quiet. Bad idea. <laughs> this is essentials. I just, I, I, I think that, I think it, it's, you know, it's a pity that they, when they, when they did that, they went under the name of Hasidism. They should have just called it Judaism. Right, because it made it divisive. You know, it's like, that's that group. You want to call it something divisive. First of all, the word Hasid means devout. Devotion. That's a good word. Guess what the word was again? The people who came out against them, who Litvish. tried to stop them. Litvish. No, well, they became known as Litvish. They were called Misnagdim. That means the ones against. How would you like to be named the ones against? How would you like to be named reaction? Yeah, but who named them? That? Reaction or haters? Yeah, but what, what I'm saying is that. I uh, you said good. But who named them that? Who named them that? The Misnagdim? Yeah. They named themselves that. They did not name themselves. Yes, they did. They really did. For sure. There was this movement, and they made. They named themselves the. They haters. started burning trash cans over the movement. They were the haters of the movement. Yeah. Um, so you're saying the main divide between Hasidus and Misnagdus is Kabbalah. So the Vilna Gaon, who is known to be the leader of Hasidus and against Hasidus, was a giant Kabbalist. We someone answer his question. I answered that twice already. 
thinking the rabbis were Kabbalists. But they left the people hanging. The Vilna Gil left the people hanging? He told he wasn't not teaching to He wasn't traveling from town to town teaching Kabbalah, I'll tell you that much. Nor were the Hasidic masters either. They were speaking in very general terms. What is a what is a Hasidic book? A Hasidic book is a Kabbalah book. But what kind of Kabbalah? Kabbalah for laymen or Kabbalah for Kabbalists? Which one? Layman. For laymen. is layman's Kabbalah. And and that's what they created. Vilna Gomez were not writing Kabbalah for laymen. Okay, okay. Clear? We're good? Now, back to history is that there are customs that are highly Kabbalistic customs. And one of those is favoring the right. We favor the right hand, it's chesed. We favor chesed over Gevura. Gevura is super important, but we favor chesed. We favor the Gevura means discipline, and chesed means flow. So we favor flow over discipline. You need discipline, but we favor flow over discipline. So you, when you walk into the chuppah, everybody, when you all get married, you step in with your right foot. When we put on our shoes, we start with the right foot. When we put on our sleeve, we start with the right hand. When we put on our pants, we start with the right leg. When you put on a skirt, you start with the right leg. You, everything's the right. Right, 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 right. Now, is that a halacha? We don't. It's not a halacha. There's tons of things in Shulchan that are not halachas. They are Kabbalistic ways of doing things. Okay? For example, in the bedroom, which we spoke about yesterday, and I'm not going into detail here. But the Shulchan Aruch goes into um, great detail of how to sanctify one's bedroom experience. But that's a great way to ruin your marriage in the first years, is to follow that those those guidelines. He, he wasn't writing halacha. In fact, if anything is halacha, the Gemara says that halacha in the bedroom with their spouse. And that's Rabbi Elezer. And the Gemara Paskin's there. No one disagrees. And then all of a sudden, the Shulchan Aruch pulls up. And with a long list of the things we don't say, meaning that we are, that is not the halacha. So what's he doing? Answer, he was giving guidelines in sanctifying, sanctifying one's intimacy when someone's ready to sanctify their intimacy. Now, um, by the way, there was a long period of time where you could teach a bride and groom sanctified intimacy because they didn't know anything else. But, you know, if you're going to teach that to someone, you better interview them first and make sure, you know, they have no no idea whatsoever of intimacy, uh, you know, sexual intimacy. You better make sure they have no clue of sexual intimacy. And if they have no clue about sexual intimacy, teach them about that sanctity and see if things work out. But anyone who does have an idea of sanctity, sorry, of intimacy in the bedroom, um, in a, you know, a mu- in a, even slightly more liberal terms, you can't teach them that because what's going to happen? Either they're going to keep it and keep what they learn in their marriage and then fantasize about everyone else, or they're going to break the law, the, what they told them were laws that are not laws. They'll break those laws. Why? Because, you know, they, their minds already knew stuff. So they break the laws. And then spend their years of marriage feeling guilty about something that God actually loves and wants. And meaning they're spending their marriage life guilty. Like they're like the bedrooms become a place of sin for them, which is terrible that their bedroom should be a place of sin when they didn't ever sin. They actually followed the halacha of Rebbe 
And they, so, so you get people fantasizing or feeling guilty. So you got to be super careful today. Super careful today when you're training a, when someone's training a groom or a bride in the Jewish community to make sure you first find out what they know. If they know even a little, you got to, you have to discard those guidelines because you could ruin their intimacy. You could ruin their marriage and, and really their lives because people feeling guilty is one of the worst emotions. Guilt is one of the hardest emotions, leads to a lot of other sins and guilt leads to a lot of sins in the, uh, and of course, unfortunately, this is a subject that most people will keep to themselves. So it just keeps snowballing the guilt and can spill out into all kinds of other weird, uh, no weird uh, acting out. Because if I'm already so evil, why not really do something stupid? And but whenever you teach when, meanwhile, it was fine. What? Whenever you teach something, this is right? our discussion. <laughs> whenever I teach something, yes, it is. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> whenever you teach something, there's always that risk of them breaking it. Uh, always, yeah. That's why better to take so a more liberal approach. Take a more liberal approach, especially today. Okay, now healthy growth. You have to be very careful of getting OCD because in Judaism, there's no lack of things to take on. You can always take moron. And that's why we use the word moron, okay? You can always be a moron and take moron. But the, and, and then wind up totally in a straitjacket, tied up by Judaism. So you got to be very careful with, with those things. So the main way to go is, uh, I'll give you a couple guidelines. One principle is humras are to bring you closer to God, period. Humors are to bring you closer to God if you feel, not if you feel, if you know, you have to feel it wouldn't be enough. You have to know that this humor will get you closer to God. Then you take on the humor. You have to, because when you get upstairs, God's going to say, where was ya? He's from, he's got broken English. So God says, where was ya? And, and you're like, what do you mean, where was I? And he's like, had you taken this on, we would have had a much tighter relationship. So, so if, you, if there's a humor that would get you closer to God, then you must take it on. But I have a strong intuition here that almost every single humor I can think of, that if any of you took it on, it would take you far from God. It would take you far away from God. So mostly these days, humors take you away from God. And they're all about looking good in the eyes of a stricter and stricter and stricter community. So humors are a great way of separating you and God. What's a humra? Oh, I'm sorry, stringencies. Meaning you have a halacha, and you can take a leniency, or, and you're still within the realm. And you can take a stringency and be, like, super tight with yourself. And for some things, you probably should be super tight with yourself. But probably most things, you probably should be a little more lenient with yourself. The main thing that there's a yourself. You listening? The, go ahead, you can take a... The main thing is there's a relationship between you and God. The more humra is generated, the less you... The more leniency is the more you. So you have to always be working, making sure there's a you and there's a God. Okay? So you could go so lenient that there's no God. There's a lot of leniencies out there, believe me. You can go so lenient that you won't have to think about God all year. <laughs> like, it never comes to the point of you sacrificing anything for God. Like, there's lots of leniencies. And it, it, there are even situations where there's leniencies beyond the Shulchanach. Meaning you could go to, to, he has to be a heavyweight rabbi, but if he went to one of those heavyweight rabbis, which we don't have any around age, but if he, if he went, oh, we have Rob Berkowitz now, he's a heavyweight. So you can go to Rob Berkowitz and you can say, Rob Berkowitz, 
like if I keep this, I have a feeling I'm going to be in Las Vegas within a month. Like I can't keep that and explain the story why it's just too much for you. So Rob Berkowitz could look up a Rishon. He could look into the Talmud, find a re- sorry, look in the Meforshim on the Zalachas, find a Rishon who in that town for 2,000 years, that's what they did. I mean, his whole tradition is exactly what this guy was no, used to doing. It's just that that halacha got dropped in the two out of three Shulchan Aruch. Remember, it's two out of three in Shulchan Aruch. It's three, he paskins between three rabbis. When they agree, he writes the halacha. When they disagree, he takes two out of three. And it's three out of, like, a lot. Yeah, <laughs> and lots of people. And Rob Berkowitz would say, you kidding? In, uh, in, uh, whatever, in wherever Germany, in Mainz, Germany, that was what everyone did. Exactly what you think makes you a goy is exactly what the most pious Jews have ever lived was the way they did things. And so, and then he may say, do it privately, like don't do it publicly, because that'll freak people out, because everyone does no one knows this. He may say, do it privately. He may say, don't tell me when I told you to do this. I don't think Reverend goes do that. But uh, I, I have been in touch with some great, great rabbis who, who I said to them, like, find me a Risha. Just find me a region. And they found me a region, but they're like, you didn't hear this from me, but, and then showed you the region. Okay. So, um, anyway, that's some, uh, some guidelines in healthy growth. Uh, be real careful of trying to keep up with the Schwartzes. Um, not, not doing your growth orientation uh, based on others accepting you. You don't want to be part of that whole thing. And the last is that you always want to, and there's a really deep, subtle, maybe not all of you will get this, so put on your thinking caps for a moment. You can be into growth and never be where you're at. And I told this story a few weeks ago, I don't know if you remember, that I was with some heavy-duty, growth-oriented rabbis. I was the youngest person in the room. And we needed an extra man for a minion. And so we couldn't find anybody. And we finally got this secular guy to come in and we gave him like, one of, one of the guys took off his hat, put it on the secular guy's head, you know, Israeli guy. And he did us a favor, 10th man. Turns out we were all ready to leave. We were all leaving really after the minute. This kid was still like, like praying away. He was like, he was in my seventh heaven, this boy. He was in like the spiritual realms of prayer. And he was not doing his duty. He was talking to God. And it was like the expanded version. He like opened up the zip file and was dealing with an expanded experience of of prayer. Meanwhile, we're all feeling like total idiots. But what's the issue? What what did he have over us? He's where he's at. We're always saying, oh, I got to be somewhere else. 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 You know what happens when you always got to be somewhere else? Where are you not? You're not here. And you're not who you are now. You're always trying to be somewhere else. And this is a bit of a syndrome in the observant community, especially the Haredi-style, black-hatitude world, where growth is the name of the game. If you're not growing, you're a nobody. So you got to be a grower. But the, but the pitfall in being a grower is you're never where you're at. So my Rebbe tells me, tells us, the students, there's a couple of dear students, I'm just reminded now that our group, it doesn't look like a very strong group this time, but this classroom pays for um, someone's Shabbos. There's a family who eats off our class. 
So uh, if you can just pass around a cup. If you got, it's better to give 20s, 50s, and 100s, but if you only have change, that's fine too. Last week, he got a couple hundred shekels, but we had like a couple big machers in here. So uh, this week, whatever you can give, that's what they eat. If we don't give a lot, they eat fish, and then we give more, they eat chicken. And that, that's how it works out for him. Um, where are we at? I'm sure I was saying something. Growth? And not being happy where you are. Oh. Yeah, my Rebbe was saying, is, oh, is telling us that when you live your life, listen carefully, because it was your question, you can wait for a second. When you live your life, you're always where you're at. you got to accept where you're at. you got to accept yourself where you're at. Not only do you have to accept yourself, you got to forgive yourself. <laughs> you forgive yourself and not being somewhere else. Because why do you want to get somewhere else? Because you're not happy with where you're at. You want to be somewhere else. Which means you're not really very forgiving of yourself for being only at this point of your life. And then you got to love yourself. So first of all, you got to be where you're at. You got to forgive yourself where you're at, and you got to accept yourself where you're at, and then you got to love yourself where you're at. Okay, so what about the growth? The growth is you always keep yourself right beyond your comfort zone. That's the club. Is you always keep yourself right right beyond your comfort zone. Always be pushing a bit, pushing a bit. Like I know a family, I know a family, yeah, I know a family with the commandment of being fruitful and multiplying. Yeah, that's the first commandment of the Torah. You know why God made that the first commandment? So he figured when you'd read that one, you'd keep reading. So the that the commandment of being fruitful and multiplying is, we, the you know, in the Haredi community is taken very seriously. So what co- families do who can't handle a big family is they figure out what they can handle, meaning they're having kids, they're having kids, they're having kids, and then they realize, whoa, we're at the max. We can't handle more and raise them healthfully. And then they have one more. Just to, like, push it a little further. We're talking again, we're talking about Haredi families who are serious about growth. Meaning they finally got to where they can handle it, but not more, and then they pushed it a little further. Now, I'm not saying everyone should do that. I'd probably in our generation, probably better if people only got to what they can handle and don't have more. Because people are so on edge these days. and Very few people can handle large families this, in our generation. But let's just say they could handle four, so they, go, they push themselves to the fifth. And then they're done. So now they know they'll always be able to look themselves in the mirror and say, this commandment we did, like check. You know, how many commandments can you say? You can just say, check. I got it. There are not too many commandments, but if you're always pushing yourself a little further, so you're going to be able to say, check on your, on your mitzvahs. And that's, that's, uh, I would suggest that way to go, not necessarily with having kids. That's, I'm just giving you an example. Someone asked for an example. That's an example. Okay. Um, next. Kids and South Africa. Oh. Sexual education. Kids and sex ed. Um, the way to go these days is um, you have to keep your finger on the pulse of the community that you're and the kids' schools and stuff because you do not want the kids in school to beat you to this to the education. <laughs> that would be a bad move. Is don't let the whatever's going on in that class beat you to educating your kids. So you got to catch that early. 
Um, I've found in Jerusalem, you can't create a principle on that because every school is going to be a little different. Every community is different, different cities, different countries. But I found the rule in Israel is that before they start um, seminary, which is how old seminary? 14, 15, um, Oh, it's seminary? High school. Yeah, high school. Yeah. It was in the year 16. 13. So you can tell about it. Yeah. So I, I imagine, uh, no, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about Haredi schools where the girls go to SEM. What year do they go to SEM in Israel? 13. Whatever. Let's just say, I think here it's 14. 14? Anyway, she's entering into a new school of big kids. And all those big kids are, not all of them, but most of them will have quite an education at this point. None of it from their parents. If it's a Haredi school, none of it came from the parents. So don't be the stupid parent who didn't give it to the kid and let them go learn from kids. Bad idea. So, um, so you teach them in, um, you teach the kids right before they start, meaning take them out for a nice dinner, mazel tov, you're going to a new school and it's, you're becoming big. And you need to know the following, and then you tell them all about tell them all about it. You know, by the way, you give very little. You have to somehow match what's what they're going to be up against. If they're up against a little, give them a little. If they're up against more, give them more. If they're up against everything, you got to tell them everything. But you tell them very limited, and uh, and the main rule you give them is to never get so close to somebody that that it could get physical. And the way you scare them out of that is you give them all the horror stories of people who got married and didn't give each that spouse that they married their heart. Why? Because their heart was still in the hands of someone from high school. You scare them out of having any relationships by telling them that you'll be the lonely you're gonna be the loneliest kid in your class. I mean you'll have lots of friends, but you're gonna be way lonelier than the other kids who are who are, you know, already like giving their whole hearts to people. You'll be much more lonely than they will be. But at least when you, when a man or a woman has dedicated their heart for the rest of their life to you, they actually get it. They deserve that. Someone giving you their heart for their whole life deserves your whole heart. <laughs> Someone who's giving you their heart for your whole life deserves the whole heart, not the heart with a bunch of missing chunks from high school years. Is that clear? So, so that's the main part of the, edu- the, the education. As I said before, you match the level of, of uh, whatever the kids know about sexuality in the school. You, it's not easy to match it. You can have to do your best. And then you, um, and then you hit them with the, uh, you hit them with the, the, uh, the relationship not to give their hearts away until marriage. And, and they'll listen to you. If you scare them bad enough to how badly it would affect their marriage, they will, uh, they will comply. They may complain and cry their eyes out that everyone has all these close relationships going on except for them and whatever. That's fine. And um, one more thing. I, I'm, I'm going to hold question now because i got a few more i got to get through. Is um, One more thing is about that is... Oh... We mentioned uh, sexual deviancy is, uh, that's going to be hard to talk about. And that's just a really uncomfortable topic with kids raised in a purely heterosexual uh, community. So um, I think it's better just to say those people are confused. You know, there are people who are 
deeply confused whether they're a boy or a girl and just leave it at that like they're confused whether they're boys or girls i know it sounds crazy but the truth is if you raise your kids observant anyway they think everyone's crazy out there not because you're telling them they're crazy they're seeing everyone's crazy you don't have to go far to you know to see a tattooed body pierced mohawk you know freaky looking dude you know walking down the street your kids are like what is that and you're just like I don't think that's a Torah observant person. That is someone who's not keeping the Torah. Okay, we're almost done. Why are you teaching to judge people too early at that point? To judge? People. That's why I was saying it very carefully. They're not keeping Torah necessarily. You're not saying they're Goyim. You're not saying they're Shkansim. You're not saying, you're not, saying not, not nice things. You're just saying they're not keeping Torah. They're not keeping Torah. But everyone keeps what they want to a certain extent anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But uh, I'm just saying how you speak to a kid who just saw a guy walk down the street wearing a dress and lipstick. You, know? <laughs> you understand? Like, they're not keeping dirt, okay? Like, I'm you can saying, leave it at that. I'm saying, like, uh, someone's got a tattoo on their arm. Nothing. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying, though, if you saw... It's a past mistake, they're over it. He said you could say it was a past mistake and they're over it. I just um, <laughs> teach them to. There's a lot of creative answers. A lot of creative answers, um, guys. We're gonna um, stringency we handle a little bit. Feminism and social justice is too big a topic for right now. And uh, Linfox we handle. Trust and effort is minimum effort, maximum trust. Minimum, if you see it's not working, a little more effort, maximum trust, a little more effort, a little more effort. You just keep seeding effort to see how it's taking. So always the highest level of trust, minimal effort, but then you keep keep throwing it out more effort. If you see it's not getting traction, more effort, not getting traction, more effort. Once it starts getting traction, so then you can go back to more trust. Shalom, everyone. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.